This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And now, from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is the Business of Healthcare. Here is your host, Jeff Voigt. Welcome to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. We're live every Tuesday at noon Eastern Time. I'm Jeff Voigt, one of the hosts of the Business of Healthcare, a graduate of the Wharton Business School Healthcare Program and principal of Medical Device Consultants of Ridgewood, a firm dedicated to increasing coverage and payment for early stage medical technology companies. <coughs> there are regions in the U.S. where medical product and service innovation have accelerated in a very meaningful way. On today's show, you'll hear from two experts who are responsible for configuring and managing the infrastructure that allows this to happen. You'll also hear about the types of innovations that, th- that are being introduced into the marketplace, allowing healthcare to improve upon the triple aim of medicine, namely lowering costs, improving quality, and access to care. We'd love to have you join in the conversation by calling us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. So joining me today on the phone, Dr. John Parrish, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the Consortia for Improving Medicine with Innovation and Technology, commonly known as CIMIT. He is trained in internal medicine, dermatology, and clinical research. Dr. Parrish founded both the Mass General Hospital uh, Wellman Center for Photomedicine, the first and now the largest multidisciplinary research group investigating therapeutic uses of light and the Harvard MGA's Cutaneous Biology Research Center. He also founded CIMIT, a Boston-based consortium of medical and engineering institutions working together to identify and facilitate innovators in in the domains of devices, procedures, and systems engineering. Now, over $500 million has been invested in the launch of these three centers. Dr. Parrish has authored over 300 publications and seven books. He served as a physician in Vietnam. In 2009, he became the founding director of the Red Sox Foundation, Massachusetts General Hospital home-based program committed to identifying, motivating, and treating veterans with invisible wounds of war. Dr. Parrish headed the Department of Dermatology at Harvard Medical School and at Massachusetts General Hospital and is now the Edward Wigglesworth Professor Emeritus at Harvard Medical School. He is a member of the Institute of Medicine, National Academies of Science, and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. John Parrish, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. It's good to be with you. And our next guest who's in the studio with me is Dr. John Swartley. John is the Associate Vice Provost for Research and Executive Director at the Penn Center for Innovation, commonly known around here as PCI at the University of Pennsylvania, where he leads a team that's focused on facilitating new product development, venture creation, and corporate partnerships based on expertise and technologies created at Penn. Prior to joining Penn in 2007, Dr. Schwartley served as Senior Vice President and General Partner of BCM Technologies, the venture capital investment subsidiary of Baylor College of Medicine. John holds an MBA and a PhD from Emory University. John's in the studio. John, welcome. Jeff, thank you very much. I appreciate the invitation. And uh, John, nice to meet you by telephone. Nice to meet you, John. So today, I'm going to, hopefully it's okay with you guys, I'm going to call you John P. and John S. Is that... Sounds good to me. So we don't get confused, all right? That's great. So uh, a little bit in the news today before we go ahead and start with uh, the questions is, uh, as you know, probably Jimmy Carter, um, who had, uh, I think he had uh, metastatic uh, melanoma. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So he, um, 
uh, he had, with the use of immunotherapy, has been successfully treated and now is, I think, in complete remission. So um, those kind of therapies, immunotherapy, are becoming more and more common in cancer treatments. And I know that uh, Penn is one of the pioneers in this with their CAR T-cell immunotherapies. Um, John, you want to comment a little bit about what you, know, what you guys are doing there? Yeah, I would. I'm, I'm, I'm obviously not the physician on the, on the discussion today, and I'll, I'll leave that to John. Um, but, uh, you know, I think there were some extraordinary, extraordinary advances in, um, in the treatment of uh, malignancies such as can- cancer. Um, and a lot of that has to do with um, an explosion of, um, of, of science and medical results in, in the field of immunotherapy. And I think that's um, you know, really what's, you know, driving some of the excitement and enthusiasm in, in, uh, in, in, in that space. And a lot of it has, has happened here at Penn. There are a number of other institutions and companies that are now um, in very active development. Uh, we have a large partnership with Novartis, for example, to develop CAR T uh, treatments. But it's, uh, you know, from my perspective, it's, you know, fan- fantastic, not only for the, the patients who are, you know, in desperate need for these, these sorts of treatments, but it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's looking like it's going to be a significant uh, area of commercial activity as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, John uh, Paris, do you have any comments on that? Or? Uh, yes. Uh, the advances in treatment of melanoma uh, after decades of darkness have come a long way in the last five years. Uh, Jimmy uh, Carter is lucky because he now is in remission uh, with immunotherapy and chemotherapy and I think some radiation, and he uh, that would not have been possible just a few years ago. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's exciting, and a lot of the stuff is obviously happening at these, I'm going to call them innovation di- districts, which we're going to talk about today. So um, to get started, uh, and let's dive right into this, I'm going to start with um, John, John Parrish on the phone. Tell me about your organization, CIMIT, and what its mission is. CIMIT's mission is to accelerate the healthcare innovation cycle, uh, and we do that by facilitating collaboration among clinicians, technologists, entrepreneurs, and companies uh, to create novel products, services, and procedures to improve healthcare. Uh, it's a 14 uh, Boston Institution consortium. All the Harvard teaching hospitals and um, also Boston University, Boston Medical Center, the VA, healthcare system, MIT, uh, Northeastern, uh, 14 institutions in engineering and uh, healthcare, the teaching institutions uh, collaborate to improve healthcare. So how long have you guys been in existence? We, we're about 20 years old. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I, w- I want to get back to a little bit more about, you know, why this happened in the first okay. place. But I want to get to John John S. here. Okay. And with uh, talking about PCI. John, tell me a little bit about that and its mission. Sure. So uh, there's some, you know, some striking similarities there. Uh, the, the organization that, that we, we now call the Penn Center for Innovation is um, relatively young. It's, it's, I'd say, about two and a half, three years old at this point. It, it was an evolution from a more traditional technology transfer organization um, that existed at Penn. Um, and technology transfer uh, at, at big academic medical centers and, and, and universities tends to be a transactional business, patents and licenses. The Penn Center for Innovation is is different because you know, and I like to explain it in in in, in sort of a, 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 a simplified fashion as you know, we're we're in the business of making 
creating relationships. And then typically the relationships we're interested in fostering and, and supporting are relationships between the internal innovators, the faculty, staff, and students here, and the private sector. So the investors, the entrepreneurs, and of course established businesses. Yeah. So um, John S., and then I'll get to John P. on the same question. So. Um, why is this happening now? I mean, what's what's the impetus of, of getting this stuff going? I mean, it, it's kind of an interesting dynamic. It's occurred recently, so help me understand that. Well, I, I think at least at Penn, I think what, one of one of the driving factors has been um, the realization, and this is a realization across the university and, and certainly at the le- leadership level, that the university can be a very active partner in trying to you know motivate and catalyze and, and convene these these sorts of important partnership activities. You think about traditional academic institutions and what they're known for, you know, scholarship, teaching, research, pushing back the frontiers of science. But in doing so, um, we often create, um, you know, very exciting, potentially very important and useful innovations. And those innovations, if they're not so if they're not translated out of the academic sector, if they're not motivated, you know, towards the private sector, they can languish. They can sit on sit on the the shelf and not and not provide a benefit. So I think a lot of institutions, and you're 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 picking up on this. A lot of institutions have identified that that third mission as being extremely important to their own you know kind of fundamental philosophy. And and certainly that's happened at Penn. And so that's why you're seeing this big commitment towards a center for innovation. Yeah, and I, I want to get uh, John uh, I'll, John. I'll get the same question, but I also want to talk a little bit about I mean this this sounds like it's a money it's a, a money uh, generator for for these institutions as well is that correct well I, I think my 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 bosses will will certainly hope that that's the case okay. so they've had to make some significant investments to make this happen you know I, I it's academic it's you know we're in an academic um, you know we're in an academic system mm-hmm. and we never do anything simply for you know financial return. I'm not a venture capital fund. I'm not a you know a company with a with a board that expects you know ten dollars for every dollar invested. However, I think there is an expectation that if we do this well and we and we create um, you know fundamentally strong relationships, that there will be downstream um, you know value that's created. But equally important to us is the fact that we're helping to translate this technology that somebody out there is going to benefit from the products, goods, and services that are created. from That's that's equally important. I think it's important for me to emphasize that because I think, you know, we're, we're not just a pure business, you know, uh, institution. We're, we're also ad- advancing the, the, the mission of the university. Yeah, so, so John Paris, you know, you've been at this a while longer, and I'm, I'm assuming this is probably a a money generator for for Summit and and for the organizations involved, but but tell me again about uh, you know how and why this uh, it started. Well, I think uh, in, in a very broad sense, there's a societal disappointment uh, from Congress and the citizens that the massive investments in basic research through the NIH and other mechanisms have not brought about the impact on healthcare that was fantasized about and. So I think that people are looking for uh, how do we invest money into research that translates basic science into actual improvements in healthcare. Mm -hmm. So I think you're asked one of your questions about timing. Why are people thinking about this now? I think it's because we're so impressed with the increased understanding in the uh, pathophysiology of disease and in molecular biology that uh, there's some frustration with translating all this new information into healthcare. So I think people are looking for ways to accelerate that translation. And as far as making uh, money, uh, 
We, uh, our goals are clear. The number one is impact on patient care, uh, uh, improving patient care. The feedback loop to uh, bring in money by doing that is complicated because uh, if you do introduce new devices or procedures or systems, uh, the income comes back to the hospitals, to the care systems, to the physicians and to industry. And who is responsible for having a good part of that income come all the way back to the beginning of the innovation? And that's the challenge that uh, John and I both have and institutions have. How It can start out with the institutions making an investment, mm-hmm. but at some steady state, it has to be a sustainable loop bringing funds back into the institution. And that's a challenge. And so it sounds like you guys are there. So this is, this is sustainable. Is that right? Uh, Summit is sustainable, but not because of the feedback loop that we've created to bring in royalties and licensing fees. It's sustainable because the uh, investigators we support also obtain NIH funds and uh, funds from NSF, and we have uh, Department of Defense funding and um, philanthropy funding. So a fair amount of my job is to keep generating of the basic uh, financial foundation to keep things going. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, John S. will tell you what a challenge it is to try to have the the feedback loop itself, money from licensing and royalties, to keep the pump going. Yeah, right. I, I would agree with that. I we describe it as chunky. Chunky. <laughs> chunky. Oh, now what the heck the, does that mean? I mean, <laughs> if if um, you know, you kind of look at a at, at the portfolio effect that occurs when when you manage technology for a large institution, you have the whole range of very early you know, stage assets, and then some assets that have been then licensed and hopefully in, in development. Only a tiny portion of those ever make it to, to product, and only a tiny portion of those ever generate any real income. And it's very hard to time and predict when that will happen, particularly with medical um, technologies. Drugs obviously take a very long time to develop, very expensive. Mm-hmm. The fallout rate is very high. So it attempts to model how the income, you know, I think on a very gross basis, you can look at a portfolio and expect, you know, some 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 return. But but actually modeling exactly when those spikes and they tend to be spikes occur is very difficult, and that's why I call it chunky. Right. So I'm just going to reset here. I'm Jeff Voigt, and you're listening to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. We're talking about um, hotbeds of regional care and some of the infrastructure that's required uh, in order to get uh, these uh, these things up and running. And I have with me. John Parrish, who is the CEO of CIMIT in uh, in Boston, Massachusetts, and I have John Swartley, who is the head of Penn Center for Innovation or PCI. So let's um, let's get back to um, the types of organizations you guys work with specifically. I, I know John uh, P. You mentioned some of the institutions, you know, the, the major medical and uh, teaching institutions. But how about outside the organizations? Who are you working with? Well, as I mentioned, we have uh, uh, had a fair amount of support from the Department of Defense because uh, we work a lot on devices and procedures that are effective in uh, trauma care, so therefore can be useful to combat casualty care. Mm -hmm. Um, Our dealings with industry are actually the product of our work and not the source of our work. The ideas and innovations come from our academic base and then for each of the projects, it's translated out into industry. So 
the industry connections come late and not early as part of the foundation of our work. All right. So when you say late, help me understand what that means. Well, uh, it take from a time of having an idea uh, to showing, demonstrating feasibility and proof of principle, and changing it into a product uh, for products and for devices. Mm-hmm. Uh, that can be three to eight years, uh, and that's much quicker than for drugs. Drugs, uh, the the from idea to uh, product can be a decade or two. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, John um, S, help me understand the types of organizations you're working with. I know you mentioned Novartis, but uh, tell me some of the other outside commercial entities and. Sure, sure, and in this in this sort of goes back to my. My original um, concept of a relationship broker, if you will, mm-hmm. and so with the, and I agree with John that uh, you know when when we are looking at technology, it reflects years of of uh, of, of work and and um, you know peer reviewed you know a- activities, et cetera. But when we when we have something in hand, um, you know we're often looking for a partner uh, to to co- to co develop it further along commercial lines, and so those partners can be established companies, established pharmaceutical companies like Novartis. They could very easily be um, you know small startup companies, companies that e- exist or are in the process of existing because of entrepreneurs and investors. We actively participate in the formation of startup companies uh, that exist outside of Penn, but have an active, um, you know, founding uh, investment from from the university, non 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 monetary, I should say. <laughs> and um, you know, we also um, have a pr- pr- you know a, a pretty strong track record of working with all different types of funding agencies. Um, you know, some of them are uh, you know for for profit. Others, like you know, the, the states and the and the, the federal SBRS TTR programs, are there other other types of resources that we that we work with. So, um, you know, we're we're pretty much willing to work with it with anyone that's that's capable and interested in helping to advance technology development. So, but it sounds like it. it so, let's talk a little bit about the infrastructure required in order for you guys to reach out to the you know the rest of the medical community. I mean, who, who do you have in place at your organization that's able to to do that? And and uh, John um, Parrish, I'm going to start with you. Okay, we have, uh, in order to be a member of CIMIT, of uh, these 14 institutions, uh, we, ha- we insist on top-down support. So the CEO of the hospital or the dean or the president of the university has to agree that they're participating. Mm-hmm. Then each of those CEOs appoints someone we call site miner, S-I-T-E, site miner, who mines that institution, and they're job and they report to the president and they are paid by the president to their job is to find candidates for innovation within their institution and then the site miners know each other and we can look for connections between a medical school or a teaching hospital and MIT or an engineering school so of the people on the ground probably the most important person on the ground is someone who's paid to mine that institution for people with good ideas, and it's usually a senior person who knows what's going on. Yeah. So, John, um, John P., give me an example of a site miner, um, uh, something that's kind of been birthed out of that particular process. Okay. Well, the site miner at uh, Mass General uh, was a pediatric surgeon, uh, and he is very interested in minimally invasive surgery, 
and has his own research program, but his job as site miner is to know all the players in the hospital who have innovative ideas. And he goes to grand rounds and meetings and meets with chiefs and spends one or two days a week simply looking for innovators. Hmm. Uh, and John S., tell me a little bit about the the, uh, the people that interact with the outside, even even inside. Sure. Too. So, so well, go ahead. Well, you know, we have, we have established a center concept, so it's a unified organization that represents all the 12 schools, of, and we're... We're representing a single institution with 12, with 12 schools. Um, the way we've organized ourselves is, 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 is in terms of business division. So we have um, a division that focuses on supporting new venture activities. Mm-hmm. We have two groups, two separate groups that focus on helping to identify licensable technologies and, and then to li- licensing those technologies. So these are in- industry in- agnostic. So it's not necessarily medical. It could be, you know. In, 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 interestingly enough, on the licensing side, we, we have created one group that specifically focuses on uh, medical school technologies, like okay. life science technologies, and the other group focuses on physical science, uh, applied science type type engineering, physics, that, that, those, those sorts of things. And so those, those are very different. Those can be very different business models, licensing models. Um, and so it's important for us to have specialists that, that can focus on, on, on one or the other. Got it. So um, one of the things that I was talking with John S. Uh, before we came into the, uh, uh, into the station uh, this morning, we were t- I was talking about, you know, I, I work in the, the device space and, and venture, capital, uh, venture capital formation around devices has just kind of essentially dried up. And, you know, I, I uh, went to a meeting about uh, a week ago uh, um, put on by uh, the Ben Franklin Innovation Group, and it was one of the more exciting meetings I've been to, I think, in quite a period of time. And it was just the the amount of energy, and that there were all these startups, and there were all these kind of like incubators put together. Penn was there, Drexel was there, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia was there, um, and, and they were all developing these devices and 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 you know trying to get them out into the marketplace. So there's a, there's this all of a sudden there's this groundswell of of, of device formation. I want to. I want to understand how and why that's happening now, as opposed to, you know, um, you know, with 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 the issues with venture capital and and John uh, John S. Why don't you help me understand that? Sure, I, it's there's no doubt. I, I there's something happening. I, I'm sensing it as well um, in, in in what what we're doing. There's a, there's an excitement around d- devices that didn't exist, you know, for for the last half half a decade. And I agree with you that. You know, when we've presented you know, kind of existing medical device opportunities to the venture capital industry, there hasn't been a huge amount of enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. You look at the statistics of investment. Uh, you know, some some of the money tree surveys, for example, there, you don't see a lot of money going into that sector. So I it was, I was intrigued by the, the the notion that there was you know significant amount of excitement, particularly in the in the med school and the health system, around devices and and. As I've started to kind of learn about, you know, what's 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 creating that that buzz. Um, one of the things that I'm that I'm picking up on is that there's there's a sense of convergence, tech, technological convergence, um, and I, I and I explain it because I'm I'm I'm, I'm not, not as sophisticated as my specialist. I, I, I explain it as you have the Internet of Everything, and now you you may you may have something called the Internet of Medi- Medical Everything. And the idea being that instead of standalone devices, you, have, you now have devices that can be integrated into uh, con- connected systems. And that, and that information can be extraordinarily valuable in the management of healthcare. Mm-hmm. And, and what I think is happening is t- 
technology's gotten to a point where there's some obvious uses for, uh, for, for, for health systems who are interested in becoming more efficient. I'd be very interested in John P's view on this because he's right right on the battle lines of this. But uh-huh. I, I'm, I'm picking up on, 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 a, on, a, on a sense here that those technologies are already being applied to problems and challenges and opportunities here. And it's that realization of how powerful the, the, you know, so this, this connectedness is that's driving at least the enthusiasm here. So, so John P., help us. Uh, I, I, I agree. I think that uh, advances in uh, nanotechnology and microfluidics and computation uh, have been accelerating very rapidly, and uh, healthcare hasn't captured those capabilities. And part of the reason was there wasn't funding from venture capitalists or other places to do that. But I think that the... Uh, uh, the awareness of the power of these uh, technologies uh, and the capability of interoperability have blended together with uh, the pressures on healthcare to make point of care diagnostics, to have diagnostics that can be uh, done in the home or in the doctor's office and get the results very rapidly, not waiting to send to a central lab. So healthcare economics is a big piece of it because uh, we need point-of-care diagnostics and we need uh, to get a lot of information from the home, from the doctor's office. And I think, uh, so part of it is the technological capability and part of it is economic pressures to be more efficient in healthcare. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, I'm Jeff Voigt and you're listening to The Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. We're talking to two experts on the hotbeds of medical innovation, and uh, I have with me as guests John Parrish, who is the CEO of Simmet in Boston, and I have John Swartley, who is the head of Penn Center for Innovation. So uh, is anyone out there developing medical devices or treatments and, and need some advice? Please give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866. I'm going to switch gears here a little bit um, with you guys. I'm going to talk a little bit about these uh, concepts of innovation districts. And, and, and what's, what's, uh, what's driving that and, and, um, as it relates to demographics, as it relates to, you know, um, uh, these institutions that are kind of the bedrocks of these particular districts. And, and you know, I'm really fascinated when I look at um, most particularly Boston and Philadelphia and some of the things that they're doing with the institutions, not only in the medical side but on the university side. Help me understand what an innovation district is. John Parrish, do you have any uh, thoughts well, on that? I think uh, some of it has to do with the fact that uh, are there technology developments going on in your neighborhood. Uh, In general, although we're getting better and better at virtual communication and communications uh, electronically, uh, real collaboration is a contact sport. Um, uh, People have to communicate frequently and um, not always formally but informally, so I think where there are hotbeds of technology development in entertainment, communication, uh, uh, computation, travel, uh, then the healthcare uh, experts who are looking out for a, for a new technology can tap into that. So I think part of the regional um, influences are just technology uh, centers of, of activity. So it's really almost a confluence of all these, uh, 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 let's say it's demographics. I mean, if you have a good transportation hub or transit system, if you've got 
uh, you know, mixed-use retail, uh, mixed-use space where there's homes and there's retail space where you've got, you know, a younger population who really doesn't want to own a car anymore and they, they rely on transit and they want to they want to go to these places that are, you know, where there's cultural, um, they have cultural amenities, uh, where there's very smart people, uh, et cetera. So, I mean, that, that sounds like both Boston and, and Philadelphia. Uh, John, John S., you want to comment on that? or Sure. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> this will sound like jargon, but... Um... <laughs> Go ahead. Go for it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, for me, it's you know, I hear, I, I hear what you both both said, and I think you know, okay, it's you know, concentration of convergent interests, and that, and that, you know, a little jargony, but that, that I think you know, if you, if I look strictly at, you know, the University of Pennsylvania and the technology portfolio we manage, there's some incredible, there's some incredible technologies and incredible ideas that will you know change practice, change, change the way. Uh, pe- pe- people do things, um, but that those technology advances don't advance on, on their own. There, it requires a convergence of, of interest, and I, I like what you said, John P. About you know collaboration is a contact sport. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, th- I think you know it, the the reason why these districts make sense is because of this sort of concentration of all of the factors, the human factors, the capital factors, the tech- technological factors. That kind of come together in one, you know, maybe messy, you know, physical interaction, so that they start to produce more than just the the sum of the ingredients. I think that's mm-hmm. that's important. And and places like Boston, Palo Alto have clearly shown the the you know the 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 value of of that kind of concentration. Yeah, I, w- I want to when we get back from you know from the break here, I want to talk a little bit about these particular areas versus say some place like Palo Alto and even a place like the Research Triangle and why this is different. But So we need to take a short break, but please stay with us. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation about hotbeds of medical innovation. I'm Jeff Hoyt, and you're listening to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111, and we're talking today uh, with both John Parrish from CIMIT and John Swartley from the Penn Center for Innovation. And if you want to join the conversation uh, as after we get back, please call us at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. You're listening to The Business of Healthcare. Here again is Jeff Voigt. So welcome back. This is The Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. I'm Jeff Voigt, and we're talking with uh, two uh, seasoned experts related to to innovation uh, and hotbeds of medical innovation. I have with me on the phone today John Parrish from CIMIT in Boston. John, again, welcome. Thank you. And then I have John Swartley in the uh, studio with me today at the Penn Center for Innovation. John, again, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. All right. So um, let's talk a little bit about these um, innovation districts, or they're called neighborhoods. And um, I'm going to start with you, John S. Um, Why are these happening now? Um, Who else is involved in the Philadelphia area in these these kind of districts? And, And, I mean, they're really accelerating quite rapidly is that is that correct i think so yeah I, there's um you know there's a significant amount of activity i i you know i think it's been long recognized that there's um there there's a concentration of uh scientific medical technological expertise here um no, no doubt and it's very strong um in, industrial um mainstays in the region, particularly obviously in the biopharmaceutical space, but in other industrial sectors. Um, so there's a concentration of, of technology and, and talent here. Um, I think what we're hoping to see happen with these innovation zones is 
um, e even further co concentration of um, entrepreneurial talent and, uh, and, and capital to support um, I ideas and opportunities that, um, you know, that, that, you know, can, can kind of be brought together be between these, these factors. And so institutions like Drexel and Ben Franklin Technology Partners and the University of Pennsylvania are making investments in um, not only in um, convening these opportunities through, you know, through organizations like the Penn Center for Innovation, but they're also starting to make or support investments in infrastructure and geography and uh -huh. and and bricks and mortar, so that there are uh, compelling reasons to to anchor these activities. So, so do you uh, interact? Um, How is the relationship with, say, Drexel and say Thomas Jefferson and, and um, uh, those particular institutions? Is it is it a loose organization? I mean, how, yeah, how I'd, that say, I'd describe it. I, I mean, I think we're you know we're we're, we're ge geographically proximal. Yep. Um, we're involved in a lot of you know some similar types of research activities. There's significant amount of collaboration at the at the faculty level. Um, we're competing with each other for grant grant funding, as mm -hmm. as, as, as you might might expect. Um, we work together through uh, local agencies such as the Science Center or the Ben Franklin Technology Partners. So there's a lot of interaction, um, but we also have our own you know sort of distinct footprints and, and, and independent initiatives. I like to describe it as a, kind of a rising tide type type of phenomenon, where we're, we're you know we're doing things together, but we're also doing um, you know kind of our own things, but but in our investments in in these innovation centers and and resources, um, you know, ideally there are benefit to the entire community, not and not just in yeah. a sort of a silo. So I'm going to get back to you in a second in regards to you know what your particular competitive advantage is, Penn Center of Innovation, as opposed to the other institutions that are involved. But John, but John Paris, it sounds like you guys have a, a more formalized structure is that i mean because you're, you're working with all of these medical centers plus the institute. yeah we do work with uh, 14 different institutions uh i i constantly remind myself because i come across it all the time that a high density of technology and academic health care centers is necessary but not sufficient for success mm -hmm. uh, because it takes a lot of energy to get institutions uh, to collaborate collaboration uh, you have to be constant and relentless in stimulating collaboration. Uh, one of our difficulties getting started was that the teaching hospitals are very competitive, uh, and their history of the engineering schools working with the medical schools and the teaching hospitals, um, individual one-on-one -on -one collaborations would spring up, but having a bigger collaboration was took a lot of energy and hard sell at first because of the competition between the teaching, especially the teaching hospitals. So, so do you have an example along the lines of, you know, where you were able to put all these pieces together in one kind of room and, and get them to, to, to work with each other? I, uh, yeah, I think uh, the... the program or project that I it was my favorite was something called Operating Room of the Future. Mm -hmm. And that is where we had uh, people from MIT and other engineering schools come over and uh, examine, walk through our operating rooms and uh, look at how we do things. And uh, they were somewhat shocked. You know, they said the technology is 10 or 20 years old. Mm -hmm. There's no interoperability. Devices don't interact. Uh, you have things on the floor where they should be hanging from the ceiling. So the engineers uh, led us to redesign the way the operating room works 
uh, we found out that the industry players did not collaborate with each other. They're, they're the, the table people and the, the uh, imaging people and the lighting people are all black boxes. It didn't enter operate. Mm-hmm. So we uh, basically, uh, with the engineers, redesigned the way the operating room worked and had the nurses, the doctors, industry, and engineers say, what's, what's the best way to get this done? Uh, but that took a lot of uh, coaxing and coaching uh, to push these people together who normally don't uh, collaborate. So it, this is across institutions, and it's an ongoing process that you're working on right now. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And so, so when when's the kind of the end result of this? I mean, is this something that's a couple of years out? I mean, what are you what are you doing well, with this? Well, uh, the end result was that uh, uh, one of the surgeons would joke with us instead of doing. Uh, five cases by 9 p.m. They would do nine cases by 5 p.m. Uh, because the way that the the, the table, the, the the litter that the patient comes in on becomes the operating room table. And you just fasten it down, mm-hmm. and the induction suite is different from the operating suite, and the the flow of traffic uh, can be uh, facilitated and accelerated. So, uh, yes, we now design our operating rooms at Mass General and elsewhere around this concept. That's cool. Yeah. So, uh, so John asked, tell me a little bit about um, Penn Center for Innovations. Uh, let's call it your, your, your competitive advantage uh, in this particular area. I mean, what, what do you offer that Drexel doesn't and Thomas Jefferson doesn't? What, what's the... What's the secret sauce here? Sure, I love to brag about PCI. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I actually ad- adapt a little bit from the operating room of the future because we, we kind of went through, you know, we were not an oper- operating theater, but um, in, 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 a, in a strange way, we kind of went through an in- a similar practice where we, we, we took a hard, unvarnished look at, you know, commercialization activities that were go- going on uh, at the institution. And uh, this was this wasn't just me. This was uh, you know this was a, a, a process that was you know involved leadership. And How long ago was this? Was this recent? About or? three, three and a half, four years ago. And why? why what um, I think because there was this sort of growing realization of um, that the university needed to be a significant player, and can we do things better? You know, we have, uh, and, and what we discovered is we had we had tremendous in, um, innovative and entrepreneurial resources at Penn, but they. They were. They tended to be sort of distrib- They were. They were in various places and not necessarily always court coordinated. And so, what I think the aha moment we had was, um, why don't we make more efficient use of these resources by putting them into proximity with each other and giving them a shared mission and having, you know, some um, coordinated over oversight of these activities. Yeah, so so the and um, that's di- that's new. Okay, so the close proximity is what is is that what you guys are doing at PCI? It, yeah. And so th- they get together on a regular. I mean, how how does that work? So I mean, I mean the the organization that I that I manage is is an organization that is composed of. Uh, you know, a variety of commercialization resources. So instead of having them disparately located and, and organized, they're, they're now, it's, it's a, more of a one-stop shop model. There are other innovation resources at Penn, but it's easier for us to, to interact with them. And at least for external clients who want to do business with Penn, it's very easy now to identify you know, PCI as a very um, easy point of entry to, to, to the process. Yeah. So just a quick question for you guys on, <clears throat> so this this model of innovation districts and, and kind of the concentration of all these uh, disparate functions and, and, and resources coming together, 
Um, is is this a, a, um, a paradigm shift from, say, the research triangle of North Carolina where you, I mean, you know, with that particular uh, uh, institution or, you know, whatever you want to call it, um, I mean, you got to drive to it. Uh, it's way out in the middle of nowhere kind of thing. And, and now all the stuff is kind of being concentrated together. So is it a, is it a uh, do you see this as a sea change in, in how uh, innovation happens? Or any thoughts on that, John Parrish? Well, uh, I think that I don't know the research triangle that well. Mm -hmm. I, I know it's powerful. I don't know if there are any teaching hospitals within the triangle or how how the uh, communication with the actual medical establishment is. But one thing one thing that we've learned is that uh, innovation, in our view, comes from mostly from clinicians. When we started CIMIT. Uh, 20 years ago, mm. we were agnostic about whether it would be more of a technology push or a clinical pull that was more powerful in actually improving healthcare. And as our experience is that with a very few exceptions, it's almost always clinical pull. That if you start out by addressing the needs and problems experienced by clinicians, it's much more powerful than looking or pushing for uses of new novel technologies. Uh, and we we didn't make that happen. We just watched it happen as we looked for innovation around us. And I don't know, John S., is, if that is also what you're observing in your environment. Oh, certainly on the medical side. I think that's that's very, that's very true. There's an interest, some interesting things happening, you know, on the non-medical, the physical sciences side, for us at least, um, and a lot, a lot of it's driven by startup activity. And the startups, a lot of the startups tend to be student, either you know, undergrads or graduate students or po postdocs. Yeah, take their project and yeah, go and they're thing. very, you know, they're 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 so much more in tune with the needs of the market than we are. Mm -hmm. And so we, you know, they're they're our scouts in terms of where, you know, where where technology development's going. And they and they tend to be very successful in getting these things going and getting attracting interest and. So we've had to adapt on the non-medical side. We've had to adapt our model a bit to uh, to be able to support that. Yeah. So I'm going to reset here real quick. I'm Jeff Foyt, and you're listening to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. We're talking today about medical innovation and hotbeds of medical innovation and the infrastructure required uh, for that. I have with me guests uh, uh, John Parrish, who's from Summit in Boston, and John Swartley, who is the head of PCI at uh, University of Pennsylvania. So you guys bring up a really interesting point. You know, when they talk about uh, paradigm shifts in in, uh, in various industries. They always talk about the outside people who make that shift and, and change the way things are going. You guys are saying the almost exact opposite. The change is coming from within. And 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 so 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 why why is that? I mean, you know, when you look at all this other other places that are out there, and they talk about you know when an industry changes dramatically, it's something from the outside as opposed to the inside. So what's what's uh, what's the mindset? Help help me understand that. Well, this is John P. I think yeah. that the, the what's coming from the outside is the pressure to make healthcare uh, less expensive, safer, and more efficient. Um, so there's a lot of outside pressure. Uh, but I think you're right that the changes in technology transfer and in uh, translational research are largely coming from within the institutions. I know that uh, what John S. is doing is. Uh, taking what uh, in many academic centers used to be what we call a licensing shop. You know, they, they make deals with industry and for startups and for licensing. But realizing that the innovation cycle 
the institution and its experts have to embrace projects very early on, mm -hmm. go through the steps of protecting intellectual property, go through the steps of demonstrating feasibility and proof of value, and uh, expand their expertise to adopt projects earlier and facilitate them out to the other side and not just try to be a licensing shop. Uh, and uh, of course, you know, we, we need technology transfer offices and we need the licensing expertise. But I think what uh, John S. and others are realizing is that the job of translational research and technology transfer is a very broad job requiring lots of different expertise. Got it. So uh, we have a caller. We have Gary from Indianapolis. Gary, you on the phone? Yes, I am. Thanks. Yeah. So go ahead, please. Uh, for First of all, I, I'm enjoying the conversation, and uh, particularly about the cooperation necessary from a number of different parties to be effective and efficient in this, this kind of endeavor. I work in the medical device industry in Minneapolis, and one of the things we're seeing more and more of is us medical device companies reaching out to computer companies like Apple and Microsoft to really engage um, in their technologies in order to access patients at home, primarily with chronic diseases. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing that on your end as well, or can you just share some, some insight into that? John Ness? Well, I, John P. May, may, may have a better answer than I do. Well, but I, That's John P. I, yeah. uh, yes, that's <laughs> going to be a powerful influence. I think uh, several things are happening at once. The, we need to have uh, diagnostics uh, in the home. Uh, that are constantly feeding information to uh, the caregiver's office where it can be uh, collected and uh, analyzed. Uh, and some of the technologies in Apple and uh, elsewhere are uh, perfect for collecting point-of-care information, analyzing it, sending it to a central place so that you you don't go to the doctor's office, have a bunch of bloods drawn and samples taken. Those are sent off to the lab. In a few days, the results come back and the patient's contacted. It all has to happen mm -hmm. on one visit, or in fact, less than you know, zero visits because the management can occur more upstream. And I think the, the some of the big actors and computation and communication are going to play a role in, in making that possible. So, J John P., are you working with any of those uh, types of, um, uh, you know, uh, th those types of industries? Are you working with the, the big players like Apple and yes, no? We are, we are not yet, but we hope to because uh, okay. I think they're going to be big problem solvers. We have funding from the NIH to develop new point-of-care diagnostics. Yep. Uh, and what we've been doing so far is project by project we either license it out or have a startup but uh, i think you're right that a, a partnership from the very beginning with big players is going to make a big difference uh, john you have any comments on this or? yeah i agree with with all of that i i and i think that's already starting to hap happen here i was going to pick up on what john p had said a little bit earlier um in in terms of you know the the kind of the motive forces behind some of this, and, and one of the one one of the drivers for creating you know the, the center that that I that I work in um, was something we we were seeing at the faculty level. We were seeing faculty engagement with private sector um, hmm. partners, um, you know, often driven by you know you know chief scientific officers or or you know or prominent scientists on on the industrial side. But there was very 
active, very early stage interaction between those parties. And we realized, you know, we shouldn't be waiting until we have a, a, a patent, a license. We should be trying to support that activity because that's what's going to lead to co-development projects. And, and, and in fact, I have a slide, which, of course, you can't see because we're on the radio. <laughs> but there's this, you know, there's this concept of the valley of death is the difference between, you know, where we normally have early stage technology and, and something that gets to market. And how, how do you get it past this valley of death? Well, one really good way to do that is to get the two partners talking really early on and supporting each other so that they're co-developing it through through that space. And that's been a very effective strategy for us. So, um, so Gary, thanks for the call. We appreciate you calling in today. Uh, I'm going to reset here. I'm Jeff Voigt, and you're listening to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. And I'm talking today about medical innovation and hotbeds of medical innovation with two experts, John Parrish from Boston, who heads up CIMIT, and uh, John Swartley, who heads up Penn Center for Innovation. Um, so um, I'm going to switch gears here a little bit uh, again. Uh, so how are you guys measuring the success of what you're, do of what you're doing? Um, what are the metrics you're using? Uh, John P.? Well, the metrics of success are, are very important, and you have to use uh, academic metrics and business metrics. You have to look at publications, promotions, uh, and uh, all the academic publications, all the academic metrics, but you also have to look at business metrics, how many patients treated, uh, what was the income generated, uh, and uh, look at the measurements of patents. Uh, so it's a uh, it's a blend that the academic people aren't used to and the business people aren't used to, but you have to blend all the academic metrics and uh, the uh, business metrics uh, to measure your success. So do you, do you have two or three major metrics that you, you look at that are most important to you, or, they, or is there a set of more than that? Well, we look at the uh, uh, number of patents, uh, technology readiness level, which is how uh, much have you already demonstrated feasibility, follow-on funding, you know, did the projects we support get other funding from academic sources, recognition of the PI, career impact, peer-reviewed publications, uh -huh. uh, capital investment, how much was invested, not just from other sources, but from from industry. One of one of our measures of success is other people's money, Got handing it. it off to uh, uh, to industry or other sources of money. So, John S., what are your metrics? Yeah, this is an interesting question for me because prior to coming to Penn, I was a venture capitalist. As a venture capitalist, I had I had one, <laughs> I had one right. metric. Yeah. That, that was <laughs> that's it. A, that's a biggie. It was quite simple. You know, you're either you know providing return or you're not, and uh, so. At Penn, it's uh, you know, and and probably at most most academic institutions, um, it's I have a spreadsheet that captures all of the metrics that we're we're, we're interested in. You're um, not going to tell us what they are. I can tell you what some of them are. So, <laughs> but uh, you know, and I have I tend to have some spreadsheet. <laughs> That's right. How did my spreadsheet? Double top secret spreadsheet I, that he has. <laughs> I, I I tend to to focus on on things like um, you know we have a very active startup program, so jobs created. You know how many how many yeah. new jobs that didn't exist before exist because of com companies that we created. We we do track return on investment. Um, we have to, um, mm -hmm. but you know we we're also really interested, and this is a biggie for us. Um, you know how how many uh, industrial sponsored research dollars are coming in because of these these activities. That's really important to the institution, not only because of the dollars, which are always important, but also because those represent joint development 
tech technology development op- opportunities. Those those are those are you know areas of research that uh, are that are important to the institution it's and important a, it's to our also students. Also, a form of reality testing and peer review. Exactly. If someone else is willing to invest. Yeah, yeah. So um, we have about two minutes left, and I'm going to give you each guys about uh, I don't know 45 seconds. Um, anything that um, uh, is missing uh, from your um, you know, from what you guys do that you wish you had to help you along the way? Well, one thing I would say in uh, summary is that uh, collaboration, uh, fostering collaboration, facilitating the process uh, from bench to bedside uh, is hard work, and you have to be relentless. It never stops. And I think one of the advantages we had early on is that we understood how hard it is and never let go of championing facilitation and collaboration. So, so is that one of your major responsibilities in your job? Yes, collaboration? Yes, yeah. uh, sponsoring an environment where collaboration uh, can be sustained. Got it. And then John? John S. It's so uh, first, first I'll give you know, I'll, I'll take this opportunity to give my own institution kudos for the significant investments they've made in, in supporting this. Um, if if I want to nitpick, and it's yeah, maybe it's a little more than nitpick. The 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 area where where we could we could definitely use some more um, you know some more resources, early stage funding. I mean, that's probably that's not just yeah. that's not specific yeah. to Penn. It's 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 a common common complaint. But I think. I'm I'm optimistic that in in cr- kind of cre- creating this concentration of interest and uh, making investments in infra- infrastructure that once once we have this um, you know kind of buzz of activity that the that that the money will will will, st- will start to follow. I know it has in other innovation zones. Yeah. So so we have to unfortunately cut off today. I just want to thank our guests, uh, John Swartley from Penn Center for Innovation and John Parrish from Simit. You guys have been great today. A lot of good stuff talked about. Unfortunately, we didn't get through about half of these questions. And maybe well, we'll, thank you. It was a yeah, pleasure. It was yeah, fun. And maybe we can pick up again. So I'm Jeff Voigt. You're listening to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. Enjoy the day. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. Play.